Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss return to work strategies, advice, and success stories. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of iRelaunch, and your host. Before we get started, I want to remind our relaunchers who are listening to make sure to go to the iRelaunch.com website and sign up for our job board because that is where employers are going to hire relaunchers for their career reentry jobs and programs. Let's start with our conversation for today. Today, we welcome Wendy Sachs, a seasoned communications executive and creative storyteller. Wendy has spent more than two decades in media as a journalist, Capitol Hill press secretary, Emmy award-winning TV producer, Forbes columnist, author, film director, and digital editor-in-chief. Additionally, Wendy is a frequent keynote speaker, giving talks about growing confidence, embracing failure, engineering serendipity, and taking risks. In today's episode, we speak with Wendy and her career pivots and the career breaks that she's taken along the way. Wendy, welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. I'm a big fan of the work that you're doing and of your company. And it's so great to know that companies are actually looking to hire relaunchers. So um, thank goodness for that. I know. Well, thank you. I know that we have been in touch for a long time through a lot of um, career transitions for you. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to you about these transitions and career breaks. And you're absolutely right. Over time, the uh, number of companies, employers that even public sector employers that are uh, offering career reentry programs has increased exponentially. And so uh, we are really excited about the uh, increasing recognition of the talents of relaunchers. So let me start, though, um, if, if um, with asking you a little bit about your professional journey, because, you know, there's this misconception that careers should be linear and that sometimes employers will um, look negatively uh, if they're interviewing you, if you have uh, career breaks and career pivots. And I wanted to know, was that ever something that was of concern to you uh, while you were entertaining your first career change? Absolutely. I mean, I'll be honest. I have, I think my career has been very untraditional. I have definitely hopscotched around. Um, I am the definition of nonlinear. Um, I, you know, and I can, we, I, we may discuss later sort of how I connect the dots for people yeah. because I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, but yes, I would say that there is definitely a concern of how am I explaining myself? How am I repositioning? Are people going to think I'm super lame that I can't hold a job? I've had so many, you know, how do I explain it? How do I talk about gaps and also just switching it up so much, right? Mm -hmm. And that is truly what I learned to hone in on when I was writing the book, Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. How do you sell your story to someone? How do you explain it in a way that is cohesive, that makes sense, and that you actually feel like very confident and empowered by? Yeah. So Wendy, 
Before we go any further, I have to just hold up the Fearless and Free book. Um, I've been a fan of yours for so long that there was a book you wrote before that called How She Really Does It, and I have that book too. And these books have been on my special shelf of books about women and careers, which I have been collecting for almost two decades now. So I'm glad you mentioned your book, and uh, that's a great place to actually Start, give us a little bit of background about your professional journey. And, and I'm interested when you're telling us, you talk about how you like weave the, the different pieces of it together. So maybe you would be demonstrating that even in the way you describe it. So, yeah. Okay. So my elevator pitch to you, Carol, yeah. um, would be I'm, the through line to my career has been storytelling. And that's really the theme that sort of connects everything that I've done in my career. Now, I will tell you, we didn't call ourselves storytellers back in the day. I went to journalism school. I was a journalist. And then I started my career on Capitol Hill as a Capitol Hill press secretary. I like to say that I was the youngest Capitol press secretary and the lowest paid in 1993. <laughs> uh, they published this information. So I can tell you that for, for sure, I'm making $15,000 a year in 1993, I was the lowest yeah. paid. From yep. there, I left Capitol Hill and I went into television and I moved to New York and then I worked at Fox and I worked at CNN and I worked at NBC. Um, and after that, it was the big dot-com first, uh, first evolution of dot-com madness. And I wanted yeah. to get in on that. And um, I started working for a startup company that Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle, had created. Um, and then 9-11 happens and I have my first baby. And I'm struggling to sort of figure it all out. How do I have that sort of high-flying career, but also, you know, be around for my baby who I was nursing? And I knew the NBC was looking for uh, journalists to come cover 9-11, but I didn't want to leave my baby. And that moment was really what inspired How She Really Does It, which was how do you balance a career and family? And let me also remind you, that was 20 years ago. That was yes, at the beginning, was. really, of this idea of work-life balance and the beginning of blogging. There were no bloggers. It was sort of like the dawn of the internet era where people were actually moms, women. People were just like writing down their sort of thoughts of the moment. Um, yeah. And I really sort of jumped into that scene. And from there, I went into PR because I thought, well, PR seems a lot more friendly than in work life friendly than hopping on planes like I was doing for NBC. I was, you know, chasing tornadoes and, and every sort of like major event from the OJ Simpson trial to a plane crash at a military air force base. And PR seemed like a much more sort of family uh, friendly environment. So I moved into PR. And, but all of this really is storytelling. It was how do I define a story? How do I sell something? What is the messaging behind it? What's going to make for a sexy headline? And it, a lot of it is also the relationship building. And so this was sort of how I was sort of moving through the world between PR and writing and blogging and, and being an author and television production. Um, and that has really been my journey. Um, throughout, you know, throughout my career. And I sort of come in and out of these different moments. Then I actually directed and produced a film um, in 20, that was actually released in 2020 for Showtime called Surge about the record number of women running for office in the 2018 yeah. midterm elections. Right. But all of that sort of brought together my passion for storytelling, 
for topical news of the day, uh, for politics, you know. So it really, to me, merges sort of everything that I've been passionate about. But I will, but I will also share with you, getting hired for positions when you when you sort of hop around can also be challenging. And I, I know that's been you know something that is very close to the heart of of what you guys do and how you sell your story and how you actually get that job. Right. And and that, those are my next questions as you're speaking. Um, one of the things was it's you're telling us the story now in retrospect. But like when you're in the moment, especially in those earlier career pivots, were you afraid that there was going to be some consequence for for you um, working either a short period of time or changing along the way? I was always afraid. <laughs> I, think, I think I I will be like very honest. I think there's always a level of sort of anxiety, sort of riding on. Does this make sense? Can I do it? You know that whole imposter syndrome comes up all the time. Um, that's very real, and uh, you just have to push yourself through it because. I do think that traditionally, and also because I started doing this 20 years ago with my, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to do this, I'm going to like switch it up again. It wasn't as accepted as I think it is today. Yeah. You know, we're now side hustles and all of that is is part of, part of our vernacular. It's a badge of honor, you know, to be like leaving a job and jumping into something new. Everyone applauds that. They weren't really doing that 20 years ago when I started. And I think there was, you know, there was definitely employers who thought and jobs I did not get because people thought, you know, she's not going to stick around. Mm -hmm. um, so if we were going to role play in the early days when, before you kind of put this all together and had this great narrative around storytelling, how did you address your career breaks and your career pivots when you were in an interview? I would speak to it. I would definitely lean into it and not shy away from it and sort of explain what I was doing in those moments, but also explain how everything connected to something else and how it connected to what that job was. I think that what's really important and sort of, and I'm sure you do a lot of talking about this also on your websites and, and with your experts, but how you define yourself on LinkedIn when you're applying to a job, speak directly to what that job is and how my, my unique experience um, in various areas that quite frankly, I would always say are very adjacent to each other, mm -hmm. um, how it's going to help that, um, that employer hiring, that hiring manager, how it will help that position. And I fully, a thousand percent believe that all of my various jobs and job paths have really created sort of a wealth of contacts for me, a knowledge base that other people don't have. I have a deep bench of resources that I have found whenever I sort of start a new television project or film project or communications project, other people don't have. I know so many people now in so many spaces mm -hmm. that, um, I, I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing now that when I realize that it really has all gelled together, but I bring that. So if I'm explaining my position, I'm explaining to you how I'm going to be able to help you because I've had experience in these various places. Right. Uh, and I guess I'm also thinking again, when you're talking about what's linked all of this is storytelling. When in the whole progression 
did you recognize that storytelling was the theme? Like how far along did you get before it became obvious that this is what this, it was central to it? 2017, when I was writing oh. this book, Fearless and Free. <laughs> Truly, yeah. that is um, not to not to just like plug my book, but that was really around the time. You know, the book was inspired because I had been fired multiple times. So like, mm-hmm. let, let's like rip the sort of bandaid off of sort of what always can look like a beautiful, you know, sort of like perfect package. I'd been fired three times. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, and for all sorts of reasons, often it was, you know, oh, we can, my last job before I wrote the book, Fearless and Free, I was told that they could hire three people for my salary. You know, this is the new world of media, which isn't so new. And I was started writing this in like 2016. Yeah, you know, they can hire. Th- it was true. They could hire three people. I don't think actually it was legal for HR to say that to me. But, but, but that is the reality, particularly of like the media entertainment advertising industry. And so when I started interviewing and I started running around, I, I live in the New York area. I started interviewing for all of these jobs, like social media managers and all of these jobs that didn't exist when I went to journalism school, but because of the right. iPhone and apps and and social media, there are all these new jobs. I was way qualified, overqualified for any of these positions. And I was probably 10, 15 years older than everyone else applying for these jobs. And the hiring managers were all like averaging right 27 or 28 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was at report. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was I could I wasn't selling myself appropriately to them. Like they didn't understand what to do with me because I didn't fit into a box. Right. Like I said, I was a press secretary. They saw that on my resume, which had always given me a lot of gravitas in my early years. And it opened doors for me. Now it was like politics. Yuck. We don't like that around here. You know, I was like dealing with a different sort of millennial generation. It was a whole different vibe. And I I realized I needed to narrow my pitch down. It couldn't be my resume couldn't be 30 pages long. I should never print it out on paper. They didn't like paper. They only wanted digital. When I no. showed up with paper, they were upset. You know, there was a whole new ethos <laughs> happening in the hiring world. And I felt like the grandma, even though I was in my like early 40s, I felt so aged out of this young culture that I was trying to infiltrate. And I had this eureka moment after one very, very bad interview went south, when I walked out of the building after like walking into some startup place and getting my kale chips and getting my coconut water and all of that, um, I walk out onto Fifth Avenue and I thought, you know what? I need to write a book about what's going on here. And I need to sort of lean into the tech culture where all of these guys go belly up with their startups they blow through millions of dollars of cash. But you know what? They don't hide under a rock afterwards. They get hired again. Why? Because people are betting on their talent, not the idea of their business. So I need to lean more into me and what my story is and sell myself in a better way that's going to make sense. And that was when it sort of coalesced and I was able to say, I'm a storyteller. This is what I can do for you. And this is who I am. Wow. And things turned around after that and you were able to get hired pretty soon after? I would say so. Yeah, it was like it, it was a it's sort of these small moments where you make these little changes that all of a sudden sort of yield, you know, bigger results. Yeah. And that whole sort of manifestation of the universe. But you know, not to get so woo woo, but it's like the, you make these like smaller changes and how you talk about yourself and how the world knows about you. 
Otherwise, yeah. it was like, you've done this and this and this, and no one's not sure really what to do with you. Right. You know, I when you say these small pivotal moments, this is off the topic of career transition, but is on the topic of small moments leading to big things. I remember when I was in year nine of my 11 year career break and I was in the kitchen and I was loading the dishwasher for the, I don't know, 10,000th time. And I closed it and I'm like, I have got to get back to work. There was something about that dishwasher loading that that was it, you know, and that sort of started me rolling on the process that ultimately led to me relaunching my career and 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 getting a job back as a financial analyst. So uh, these small moments are definitely me meaningful and have big consequences. Can you talk about how you thought about level and compensation, like your title and comp as you were moving through, were you thinking I'm going to be super flexible or I always have to have a higher, better title or a higher comp? What was going through your head during all of the pivoting? Oh, that's such a great question because I feel like so many of us, and I know your audience is, it's not just women and it's all genders, but um, I will say that women particularly have a hard time fighting for salary that they deserve. And and I'm definitely uh, one of those people. And I think realistically, I feel like I was afraid to ask for what I felt I deserve because you're just trying to get back in there. Right. Um, I've done a lot of work for free over the years. I mean, I uh, do way too much work. In fact, that's been a big change in the past couple of years where I said, I'm not doing anything for free anymore. I mean, this podcast is for free, but that's different. But I was writing for free. Forbes, as a Forbes colonist, they don't pay you. I mean, it's terrible. It's actually just, it's a, it's a terrible, great business model for them, bad business model for the writer. Um, but yeah, I've done all sorts of things where I've made no money just because I need to get in there, including doing my film. I mean, I directed and produced a film that was acquired by Showtime and I didn't make any money on that. They did pay us, but because there was so much, you know, bills to be paid and, and it's very expensive to make a film and we had to raise all the money, I didn't make any money. Uh, I'm been working on documentary projects uh, where I do get paid. Still, it's not really at the rate that I should be making at this place in my career. But because I have taken breaks and, and switched gears, I'm not making the salary that I feel like I should be making, um, mm -hmm. at, which is why I'm do I do do other side hustles to make some more money in other places and other places I'll charge more um, on other projects that I work for because I believe I should get compensated. So it's an interesting, it's a great question. And it's a very interesting, um, my answer is sort of like, I'm a little bit all over the place because I'm yeah. trying to continue to do the work I want to do. But, you know, just also knowing where the market is and what they pay is can also be very frustrating. So my my advice for folks, though, who are looking to switch it up is, yeah, you have to eat a little dog food on the on the salary piece of it. It's unfortunate. Not everyone, maybe. Um, in my case, I've had to. Mm hmm. You know, everyone's situation is unique. Um, when we're working with employers on career reentry programs, we stress that when they figure out the compensation, they should be looking at the salary band for the role that the person's in. And maybe you pick something in the lower half of that salary band, but then you prorate it for the number of weeks of the internship. 
and to really underscore that this is not a way to get um, in, inexpensive labor. Uh, th this is a way to um, harness the potential of high, you know high caliber talent, uh, and it's it's working out that way. Like this model is super. Um, successful, 85% of the people in them on average get hired at the end. There's a whole philosophy around intent to hire that the expectation is that people will be hired as opposed to the possibility. That's all happened over the last you know, 15 years of, of evolution of these programs, but it's still a hot topic because for those relaunchers who, are, who have a career break and they're pivoting, one of the reasons that I, I actually wrote an article in HBR about this, five different reasons why people take lower comp when they relaunch. And one of the reasons is if they are pivoting into a new field and they feel like they have to come in more entry level, they may have transferable skills, but they, uh, they have not been in that field before. And many of them are prepared to do that and then work their way up over time. First of all, it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. You know, you are you're you're not coming in at a high level. You have to sort of build up again, and you just hope, okay, I'm going to start here, but then the next bump, I I need to make this much. The next bump, and I've done that for myself also, just asking for more and more because yeah. you should know your value. But there's also there's you know the the market will also only pay what the market thinks it should be paying. So you, there's a few different yeah. things that are going on. Yeah. And, you know, for example, I've had very senior salespeople who took like a 10, 12 year career break and, and have come in as contract salespeople because they can't get that, that even though they won all these awards, they can't get that same level role right out of the gate. They have to start, some of them started really low and then work themselves up and now are, are in a higher position than they were when, when they um, took their career break. So again, there's a lot of unique characteristics to everyone's situation, but I appreciate you talking frankly about this because it's a topic that we don't talk about enough because not enough people will engage on it in, in a frank way. So thank you. Well, I think a lot of people, first of all, I think it can be very embarrassing to feel like I'm 50 years old. I should be making X amount of money. I look around and everyone who start, who is younger than me is making X amount of money and I'm not. And you can feel very badly about yourself. Um, you know, it goes to the heart of sort of your own personal values. So I do think, and I, and I love that you're asking the question. I think there needs to be a lot more conversations about it. Um, and we need to also, we should be sharing salaries. I know that there's a whole movement, particularly among, among women to be sharing salaries and not be holding back because you just don't know, because there's so much discomfort talking about money, but we should know what the guys are making. I mean, we really right. should know what, what salaries are. And I, I applaud New York that they're now, you have to list what a salary is when you're hiring yes. really important. It's going to be transformative, I think. And also in Massachusetts and a number in New York too, I think a number of other states, you're not allowed to ask the, the your salary of your prior job and then base whatever your new salary is for your new job on that. That That's new great. job has to have its own dedicated uh, salary range unrelated to what the person was making before. I know. And that is really great for relaunchers because yeah, you know, some of absolutely. us have been out for a long time and our we were paid a certain amount of money, but it was in like 
10 years ago dollars. And yeah, so so those those developments have been really significant. So um, can you share with us a little bit about your creative process? And I'm not just talking about the documentaries that you're doing now, but whether it's in a book or I know you did a TED talk uh, and ultimately on the films that you work on, what is that creative process? And does it happen by, because one day you're just struck with an idea or are you ruminating on it for a long time and then all of a sudden it seems right? Um, I, that's that's such a good question. It's funny because I actually feel like I had that, that, <laughs> that struck with lightning feeling yesterday. Um, I am a kind of person who gets something, gets like an idea stuck in their head and becomes like obsessed with it. Um, and have to do something about it. Mm. And it's not something that I'm researching, like, hmm, what will be my idea of the moment? I need creativity right now. What shall it be? I'm going to search around for it. It's generally something that I feel really, really strongly about. And I just need to do something about. Um, that's, that's what's happened. And it's generally personal. I mean, the book stuff is all the two books I've only done two have been from a very personal oh, place, but <laughs> a lot of people write about, you know, what you care about, you write about what you know, or what's, yeah. what's worrying you or what's, you know, creating the anxiety or what the stories you feel like you need to share. Um, so it comes from a personal place and then it comes from a, I need to know, I need to share this with the world kind of a, kind of a thought process. And then the, I just, get into it. The creative piece for me is I just start it. I start working on it and I start diving in and I start doing the research and I start looking for characters and I start interviewing. And just even if it's not, I'm not shooting the interviews yet. Um, I just start talking to a lot of people. And may, let's take um, jump to the more recent um, and take the film Surge that you worked on that got, that's the one that got bought by Showtime. Uh, can you like, how did that like what was the first interview and then how did that how did you even make that happen and did you have a team and like how do you do that that was an amazing that was an amazing process so it was right after the 2016 election i was actually finishing up fearless and free and in fearless and free i had written actually a little bit about hillary clinton um, and about how she presents and how she's, you know, dinged for her voice and her, you know, if she doesn't smile enough or she's too smiling, it's not authentic. And her voice is, you know, whiny and this and that she couldn't win. Right. So I was talking about women in leadership and I used her as an example. And of course, we're coming into the 2016 election. Everyone thinks she's going to win. I put my book to bed. My book is actually coming out in February. Um, but, you know, I send it off and then the election happens and then the, it was like the entire world exploded. Mm -hmm. um, and coming out of the Women's March of 2020 on Inauguration Day, I'm sorry, in uh, 20, 2017, January 2017, there was all of these stories coming out, bubbling up about the surge of women running for office for the very first time. It was a surge of women, all of these women, 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 women across the country, and, and, and like across the political range too. Across right? the political spectrum, it was at first it was Republican women, Democratic women. Everyone's running. Everyone's running. Women are inspired to run for office. And I thought, wow, I've been wanting to do a documentary film 
for my entire career. I, I had some starts and stops and some crazy situations. I had tapes that caught on fire. I had like all sorts of nutty situations, but my entire life I had wanted to make a documentary. And I thought, this is my moment. And I connected with another filmmaker who also had a similar idea. And in, in February, March of 20 of 2017, and um, started looking for, started vetting, you know, who, who are going to be the characters in this. And the first place that I went to was actually the Yale Campaign School for Women, which is run by a woman named Patty Russo. And it's a bipartisan organization. They've been around for more than 20 years and they train, it's like a boot camp for training women. Although now they say it's not just women, it's it's non-gendered, but it, but it had historically been for women running for office. And I went in June to their one-week training and started looking for characters there who had, were going through the, the process of it. And ultimately, I was you know, hearing lots of names, people who were not at that campaign school. But I know that we, what we wanted to do was represent women across the country. And at first, it, we were looking at bipartisan women. But then the story in 20 and for the midterms in 2018 really became about Democratic women running for office. So it be, then the theme was women looking to flip their red states to or their red districts to blue. And that became the theme. And I interviewed um, lots and lots of women, boiled it down to three main characters in Illinois, Texas and Indiana. And that became that became Surge. Wow. And so. I just want to dive in a little further than that. So you identify these characters, you know, who, whose ca campaigns you're going to be uh, following. And then do you embed a video, like someone with a video camera, a professional with a video camera with each person and they just film everything? Like no, we didn't, no, we didn't have the luxury to do that. Um, my co-director, Hannah Rosenzweig and I, we were like, we were bootstrapping this. I mean, this mm -hmm. was like, we had no money. We were raising money. We were putting things on credit cards and we were calling in favors to get DPs, the, the cinematographers to be working with us or get them at low rates. And we were going to sort of choice moments along the way. And then we got to one point where we totally ran out of money. I was filming one of our candidates in Texas on my iPhone. Uh -huh. um, and some of that footage made it into the film. And it's amazing. And we had our basically shooting like, like iPhone diary, you know, speaking oh. to the phone. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic. And it all really worked. Um, so we had to get very scrappy. And I was, you know, running around the country raising money for this. And just mm -hmm. I didn't realize how challenging it was going to be. Also, we weren't the only people who had the idea of doing a film about women running for office in 2018. At one point, there were about a dozen other films out there and some were attached to like Academy Award winning directors. Oh, wow. so we were not getting the money from the foundations and the grants that these other filmmakers were getting because we had no credits to our name as directors. Mm -hmm. So that was an, an added like talk about another pivot. Here I was saying, I'm a film director please give me money. And people said, but what have you done? And so it was, we need to do this on our own. We have a, an incredible story. We wound up with an incredible editor and the film is, the film is tremendous. 
Uh, but it took, you know, going back to your question, do you ever do anything for free? And that kind of, this was all like, we love this so much. We are so passionate about this project. We are going to sort of kill ourselves until we get it done. Mm -hmm. And then it was COVID and very, very challenging film festivals were canceled. And at the last possible moment, we got it acquired. We got it sold to Showtime. And it was like the stars aligned and the film was released. Ah, what a story that is. I'm just, you know, again, telling it retrospectively versus being in each one of those moments. There must have been a lot of, talk about pivotal moments. (laughs) moments. It was was crazy. I did one interview. It was a group interview. I pulled over. You said, like, did we, you know, embed it and all? Because we started, like, really running out of money to travel to these shoots. And I knew that there were these moments we needed to capture. I had our camera woman in Texas filming a big event in Texas, a big political event with our main character. And I said, okay, when you get all of the, I want you to gather all of these women together, call me and I'll do the interview. I pulled over to a gas station and held up my iPhone. Someone like held up the phone and I was asking the questions over FaceTime as she Mm. was recording them. Those moments also made it into the film, you know, so we got really scrappy and how we did this. And I was just determined to make this movie and I just felt so strongly about it. And we're really proud of it. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I've seen it. It, it, It's incredible. Thank you. Um, Well, thank you for bringing us into the moment by moment and and giving us a sense of what's involved when when you're doing a project like this. And it's ambitious and you're funding constrained, but you're just determined to make it happen. So congratulations. Thank you. Fabulous that that it it got picked up uh, and officially released. So uh, before I ask you the question, I that our final question that we ask all of our podcast guests, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Like what happened after Surge? So after Surge, um, I actually got hired to work on a couple of other TV documentary projects. Um, one was with CNN and Vox, not Fox, but Vox, V-O-X. Mm-hmm. You got um, paid. You were getting paid. I was getting paid. You know yeah. what? Coming out of Surge, I said, I'm not doing anything else for free. This also became my whole, I cannot work for free anymore. I can't afford it. I mean, aside from just sort of personally, um, I've got two kids in college. I need to make money. I don't have the luxury of just, you know, working for free anymore. It's just enough already. And it does something also emotionally to you when you're just for so many years not getting compensated. Um, so I said, I need to do things where I'm getting paid. And so I started working on a, on several different documentary projects. Um, the last one was a project with MSNBC, which unfortunately just got canceled after we spoke two weeks ago. Um, MSNBC decided to pull the plug on it, uh, because they're switching directions and, but this is the, this is the world of media and entertainment today. So, um, I've got another project that's in development that hopefully I'll be able to talk about as soon as that gets picked up. Wow. Yeah, that's really something. You work really hard and something gets completed and then it just doesn't make it to into the public domain. Wow. Yeah, it happens more often than you, you sort of can imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, things get killed. And I think, you know, there's a lot of upheaval right now in entertainment. As we know, um, I'm yeah. a member of the WGA. There's a writer's strike going on. 
you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tumult right now in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Well, Wendy, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. We so appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Um, as we wrap it up, I do want to ask you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? Taking action. You have to take action. It is those small steps. It's so easy to feel like you're getting stuck and you're paralyzed by either fear or insecurity or just laziness, you know, of just procrastinating or not knowing what to do first or next, or just yeah. really sort of the fear of moving forward. And it's, you know, small actions lead to bigger actions and inertia is the killer, you know, so you just need to start doing something every single day. That is such great advice. It is so true. I, that soundbite, inertia is the killer. I mean, it's really true when people, that's one of the reasons we tell people try to do this with another person or a group to keep your momentum, to know that every Tuesday at 10 o'clock, you're going to have a meeting, you have to report back on the goals you set from the week before, because otherwise things come up and, you know, three weeks can go by and you are you just lost more time. So I'm so glad to be ending on that note. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you, Carol. It was a pleasure. And thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss return to work, strategies, advice, and success stories. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. Be sure to check out our resources on iRelaunch.com and register for our job board and see everything else that we have there available for relaunchers. Thanks everyone for joining us.